VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right. And good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, June the 22nd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly and David Williams. He's the producer. Let's get it going. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air to talk about whatever's on your mind, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long-distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So yesterday, the first day of summer, and a sticky old night in the bunk for the first day, but another warm, tempered, blue-sky day here in town. So let's have a chat. All right, game four tonight, Stanley Cup Finals. Can't wait to sit down and check that one out as well. Of course, you know the deal. Go, Colorado. Go. And we had Grant White on the show yesterday. He was the mayor of Twillingate when that community won Kraft Hockeyville back in 2020. They've got the money, so $225,000 for some rink upgrades. That's important. $10,000 in youth hockey gear, also important. And the upcoming preseason game. Now, I'm a Montreal fan, as you know. They had a terrible season this last go-around. But Montreal and the Ottawa Senators are going to play in Gander at the Steel Community Center on October 6th. Residents in the Twillingate and surrounding area, they're going to be put on a registry, given some preference to get some tickets, as they should be. Okay, let's go. Talking a little bit about travel, and Canadians are heading back to the skies. The airports are chaotic far too often. I know that Toronto, Montreal in particular, have had a real rough go of it, whether it be mandates and random testing and questions or staffing levels, whatever it is, we've got to get it figured out. But in the world of aviation, it was today in 1933 that American aviator Willie Post became the first person to fly solo around the world, traveling 15,596 miles, seven days and 18 hours. When he arrived in New York City, of course, the classic ticker tape parade for Mr. Post. I've broached this one a few times in the past, and it's about the voting age. And people think it's appropriate right where it is, as opposed to lowering it to the age of 16. There's, I think, a fair discussion to be had on the merits of either side. But curiously, you know, the voting age at one point it was 21, and in the United States it was today in history, 1970, when then-President Tricky Dick Nixon lowered the voting age to 18. So if you want to have that discussion, which I think is important, you know, even if you factor in the case that some 16-year-olds in Canada are working and paying taxes and yet don't have a say. So I think that's an interesting one. And then one more quick note today in history, James Whitey Bulger, notorious boss and crime boss. He was arrested in Santa Monica, California today in 2011. And, of course, he was on the FBI's 10 most wanted list for years before they finally caught up to Whitey Bulger. And on a similar note, so another arrest yesterday, firearms-related issues. So this fellow, Thomas Barnes, he's going to appear in provincial court. Charges uh, include aggravated assault, two counts of assault with a weapon, unauthorized possession of a firearm in a motor vehicle. You know, when you add in that story with the arrest from the ghouls, and these people are so young, and then the armed robberies, you know, whether we have drug-related crime, and there's every reason to believe that drugs play some sort of role in these types of crimes, and then you wonder what kind of financial pressures are going to see some additional break-ins or armed robberies or whatever the case may be because there's a little different sense, a little different feel out there. Some of these headlines and stories are becoming all too common for so many people. And then on, on the financial pressure issue, you know, whether it be the federal government, provincial governments, and some measures they're taking to try to help us out, you know, even in the federal government's $8.9 billion plan brought forward by Deputy Prime Minister Christopher Freeland last week, and curiously, 
Speaking at the Empire Club in Toronto about Canadians who are struggling and need some additional supports, talk about just a strange venue for such an announcement. But anyway, then I think some of the criticism that comes their way is that it leaves out a big swath of Canadians. That's true. But also, are we not potentially just going to compensate for or contribute to inflation with just more money in the hands of people? Which is a good thing. People need some money. They have to keep the wolf away from the door. But we've got a lot of Canadians who are doing okay. The unemployment numbers are at a historic low. But there's the money seeking so little in the way of goods. So it's just a complicated old vicious cycle here. But is it going to come a time if we see the continued rise in the cost of living, food and fuels particularly, housing also throw that in there. Are the governments going to have to do anything else? You know, there's a really solid argument to not doing something, but the financial pressures for individuals and families is monumental. It really truly is. And if you want to talk about any of that kind of stuff, we can do it here this morning. All right, let's move on into healthcare. And this uh, story doesn't get near enough attention. So we are all painfully familiar with the fact that some 24% of the province, 125,000 of us, don't have a family doctor. Wait times for specialists and up and down the line. But this one really should get more conversation. Eastern Health is reporting a 45% vacancy in psychology positions, what they're calling a mass exodus of these specialists from the public sector into private practice. We've been warned about this, and it has come. So... There's a couple of things inside this. So it might be the burnout or the rate of pay. They can be compensated much more in the private sector. There's one quote coming from one of these uh, psychologists who has left, and it's really quite striking. A neuropsychologist, Dr. Tanya Lentz, she tendered her resignation back uh, this time last year. And here's a quote from her. I felt as though my role was now becoming unethical because I was leaving people on wait lists for three to four years because I couldn't physically get to them just just because of demand. Now, even in the private sector, it's hard to get yourself an appointment. But this has a ripple effect, too, for the lack of even mentors for new graduates from psychology programs. They also go on to talk about how they've been treated interchangeably with social workers. Now, social workers play a critically important role. We know they do. But here's some of the things that they thought would be part and parcel. Now, if it's all about pay, that's one thing. But burnout is absolutely real. So they've introduced what they call stepped care. It really feels a lot like the collaborative care clinics where you arrive at the clinic and you see the healthcare professional you need to see that day. Whether it be the GP, whether it be the LPN, the social workers, pharmacists, social, whatever the case may be. And inside this, you're assessed for what level of care you may need. It all sounds fine and dandy, but a 45% vacancy at, at Eastern Health and doctors will hear from other doctors about how they feel, how they were treated, the rate of pay, the burnout, the lack of work-life balance. So consequently, it becomes more and more difficult to recruit a psychologist to backfill one that's been lost to the private sector. Also, and importantly, even inside this stepped model, as it's called, the doctors go on to say that this should not come at the expense of long-term mental health treatment, of which we know we have a serious issue regarding it. So we can talk about family doctors and the wait list for cardiac procedures and what have you, but we also know that the strain, especially the last few years, has seen more and more people seeking some counseling. Some of the counseling can indeed be offered by a social worker, no question. But other forms of specialized training and the years it takes to become a psychologist can't necessarily be easily replaced by a social worker. So we've created a storm here that has been forecasted.
whether it be the conversations that we've had on this program with Dr. Janine Hubbard and others to talk about here's what's happening, here's where we think it's going to go, and now it's here. Oh, boy. Hey, you want to take it on? We can do it. Someone sent me this story, too, and we'll stick with healthcare and doctors and recruitment and stuff for a second. We know in this province there was a recent announcement that in an effort to see more family doctors set up shop, if a family doctor opens a clinic and has a full patient roster, three years in, they'll get a $100,000 bonus. That could have some appreciable uh, impact. And we've heard from different communities about the need to potentially have flexible schedules for doctors who might want to consider practicing in Trapassi or in Belle Island or whatever the case may be. There's still going to have to be some obvious structure to an arrangement between a doctor and the health authority. And I don't know if it's always simply about money, but in the province of British Columbia, they're trying something different to see how many family doctors they can add to the fold. They say in that province there's upwards of a million people without a family doctor. So now they're talking about increased lucrative contracts, loan forgiveness, a $25,000 signing bonus if they sign on by September to work as family doctors in the province of British Columbia. So interested residents who signed on for a full-time contract will immediately receive a new-to-practice contract valued at just about $300,000 for the first year. That was the rate of pay associated with the second year. So they've jumped that up. New family doctors will also receive a $25,000 signing bonus as well as a phased medical training debt forgiveness plan, up to $50,000 in the first year and up to $20,000 in medical training debt forgiveness for each year after from two years upwards to five years. So we don't always have to just follow the leader, but if we can follow up on this and see what kind of impact it has had, and whether it be we take the same approach with graduates from Mons uh, Medical School, and it'd be great to know that of the 81 that strolled across the stage at the Erickson Culture Center, how they were asked, the jobs they were offered, and their intentions to stay or to leave. So that's what they're doing in BC on the family doctor front. And of course, it was just yesterday or Monday that we had Dr. Pat Parfrey and Sister Elizabeth Davis, uh, two of the main architects of the Health Accord and the blueprint for the implementation of all the recommendations. There's a lot to it. And if you'd like to, if you've perused it in part or in whole, and would like to talk about the health accord, which is an important piece of work, we can do that. Of course we can do that here on the show. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? Here's a couple of quick ones going here. So yesterday we found out that the YMCA has been selected by the province to be the operator of the pre-kindergarten early learning pilot program, which is set to open next year, or 2022-2023 uh, school year. We're not entirely sure of the 30 locations operated by the YMCA, which ones will be ready by fall or ready by winter, we don't know. So obviously they've got the locations, then the not-for-profit not organization with the reputation track record that they have. Seems to be a pretty solid choice. I don't know what other uh, organizations were involved. So it's going to run full-time, including through the summer months. Regulated full-day learning, early learning, under the operating grant program, families will be forced, or not forced, families will have to pay $15 per day for the remainder of 2022 and all the way down to $10 a day starting in January of 2023. So there's another trickle effect to this. It's not just, and I think pre-K is important. We know about brain development by the age of five, so this makes all the sense in the world. Plus what it will do, it will free up other childcare spaces because some of these children will be enrolled in pre-K. The enrollment process and registration is not clearly understood at this moment in time. The YMCA will be taking care of that, but they are going to be the operator of the pre-K early learning pilot. All right.
Sad news for some parishioners here in the St. John's Archdiocese. We now know, like there was the saving of the Basilica Complex in St. Bonaventure's College in the St. Bon's Forum, but now four churches have been sold. And we're led to believe that they've been bought by developers. They include St. Pius X Church, and they found out at St. Pius X on the very same day they were celebrating their 60th anniversary. St. Pius X has been sold. St. Patrick's Church has been sold. Uh, Mary Queen of Peace sold. St. Francis of Assisi has been sold. The parishioners there have been told that it was bought by a developer. So again, for the people that built and supported the churches, and the Archdiocese absolutely has to pay and compensate the victims of Mount Cashel, but again, it still galls me that the folks who are now going to be left on the outside looking in, they're moving from nine parishes to three in St. John's uh, itself, as opposed to the people responsible and the Vatican and or the Christian brothers to take care of these bills so the churches can remain open, even though there's shrinking congregations, but that's kind of beside the point. But those four churches, we now know, have been sold. A couple of quick housing notes. This is a problem that we've heard about for years. Homelessness and the transient uh, population in Happy Valley Goose Bay. It's been extremely dire. I've heard from people in the community who paint a very bleak picture. And it gets worse in the summer months. And we saw a couple of people die in the winter months, as a matter of fact, outside where they were staying, froze to death. So the promises is we created this acute response team. I suppose it's a good idea. There's a, indigenous leaders, popular uh, politicians, pardon me, who make up this particular one. But we also have a bigger problem growing in the supercharged rental market here in St. John's Metro. Here's a, here's a stat for you. Housing is just out of control across the country anyway. 37 percent, pardon me, Canadian housing is pre presently consuming 37% of investment capital in the country. 37% wrapped up in housing. Now, whether it be foreign buyers, whether it be big organizations buying up homes and flipping them or operating them as landlords or what have you, there's a lot of people on the mortgage stress test, which is completely unnecessary at this moment in time, the way it's currently structured. But the housing issue, you want to take it on? We can do it. Last one. Controversy, to say the very least, swirling around Bill C-11. It has indeed passed third reading in the House of Commons. The vote was 208 to 117. The Conservatives opposed the legislation. It's now heading to the Senate. There's some good stuff in there, but there's some worrisome stuff in there that I will acknowledge. Some of the gray wording is not great. So it does some important things. It's going to update the Broadcasting Act to bring the streaming platforms like Amazon and Netflix inside the regulatory regime. Okay, that makes sense. They are also going to use uh, platforms like YouTube, Spotify, and ask them to or make them promote Canadian music by law, CanCon kind of stuff. But where the critics are really highly focused is that there's not a clear understanding as to whether content that's made by amateurs user-generated content on YouTube or otherwise will be, quote-unquote, censored. Now, there is an absolute need to do something about the serious amount of hate that goes on online. And I think we should all be able to agree that death threats and the level of hate that we see, regardless of what politician or party you support, isn't a time that we can just all politely agree that that's bad for us collectively, it's bad for society, it's bad for democracy. You can loathe one politician with every fiber of your being, but you and I both know it. We've arrived at a point where it's gone too far. It's just gone too far. Now, who's the arbiter of truth? 
and what's fact and what's not. These are important conversations. But we've got to see some additional control of what goes on. Because I'm in the free express I'm in the freedom of expression business. I'm talking to you live on the air, willing and wanting to criticize where and when I see fit. And you know, regulatory regime for the Netflix and the Amazon's fine. Making some of the platforms play Canadian music, okay. But when it goes to the other areas where the conservatives in particular are concerned, fair conversation to be had. The liberals do this to themselves all the time. What makes it even more galling for some and frustrating for others is that they are so quick to cut the debate short. And it happened again inside the Heritage Committee where they, you know, the discussion of all the amendments, it was just pushed through too quick for something that is so important and so controversial. And they've done this more than one time at the Heritage Committee in particular. All right, we're on Twitter. For VOCM Open Line, follow us there. Our email address is openline at vocm.com. Let's get a tune going before we come back and speak with you. Today, cracking the top ten was The Crystals with One Fine Day. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go top of the board, line number one. Good morning, Ray. You're on the air. Well, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. How are you? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Good, bye. Good. Go right ahead. What's on your mind? Oh, I want to speak, Patty, about the event we're having tomorrow in uh, on the roadside here in Dunville. And uh, it has a twofold purpose. We're going to apologize to tourists uh, with flyers and things like that, signs, uh, including the NASCAR drivers if they come through, for the terrible condition of the of the highway. And and secondly, we're trying to make government aware uh, that they need to pay more attention. To this part, uh, this part of the uh, our part of the highway, it's uh, what's happening is not good enough. The depot closed something like 22 years ago, and uh, since then staff were been laid off. Uh, you know, uh, insufficient funds were put into the highway, and uh, now we have the, the the place in a mess and shambles actually. You know, imagine it's come to this where we've got uh, an event where we apologize to the visitors because of the state of the roads. And I'm quite sure that a lot of first-time visitors to the province will indeed have that as one of their initial reactions is, oh, my goodness, the roads are terrible. Yeah, we've heard already, Paddy. Of course. They have the shame. Unfortunately, they have the shame them in to acting. You know, it's terrible. Um, Yeah. Um, you know, a, a couple of things on that front. I think your event could be held on a ton of different areas in the province and have the same impact because of the same uh, deplorable state of the road. You know, I, I don't even know what the issue might be. I think they tried to make some improvements with the early tenders and the five-year priority list that we can see with some wiggle room if something goes wrong, like a washout or what have you. They bring in more money in gas tax than they ever spend annually on road work. I know it's a tight season. I know we're not going to see every nook and cranny get a flick of pavement this paving season, but I still don't understand even like, I don't I don't think it's even that long ago where I saw road work happening in Dunville, but I'm sure it's gone. Just like everywhere else they lay it down and it's just so quickly beat up that i think we got to focus more on that as opposed to you know where whether a liberal district or a tory district gets the the pavement the new asphalt but there's something going on we just don't get enough time out of the fresh stuff yeah exactly i mean we have applied now 
our government, or we hope, we've applied for some work here. But, uh, you know, the chances of, if we, this is June, and, uh, you know, if we do get something, you know, it won't be finished uh, this construction year. It's only running, and this has happened, Patty, over and over again. Sure. Uh, you know, they award, award a project, and it doesn't get finished until the following year, you know. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess you've got a sign component. You're not going to just stand there and wave and point to the road. So give us an idea of some of the signs that the tourists and all just the other motorists are going to see. Oh, boy, things like we, we said, uh, tourists, welcome to our province. Sorry about our roads. Man. You know, things like that, you know. Uh, sure. The, uh, yeah, but uh, we have flags and things like that to hold. And, and uh, you know, hopefully the traffic will slow down there and, uh, and uh, no, and uh, People can have a a chance to express themselves in whatever way they see fit. How frequently are you going to do this, right? Pardon me. How frequently are you going to do this? Well, we're not we're not going to assemble like this, I don't think. But we will over the summer keep passing out uh, flyers to uh, tourists uh, on and off as they go through. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's a real shame that it's come to this type of effort to bring further attention to the roads, and I'm sure some of the tourists will, they'll accept the apology as much as it's not your fault. I appreciate the time, Ray. Anything else you want to talk about this morning? No, that's pretty well. It's, you know, if we could only get the, get the government, one, just one thing, if we could only get government to recognize that, you know, the Argentia Access Road is equivalent to uh, veterans and and pitch memorials it's the same designs structures the same but all these get uh, treated you know all these get the royal treatment all we get is the scraps you know the the, the, the off off it's terrible boy you know I appreciate the time Ray good luck with it stay in touch thank you buddy you're welcome sir all the best bye bye yeah man. Uh, and I know wherever you are in this province listening, you're probably, and rightfully so, saying, you know, we could use some attention to our roads here. And I still can't get over a video I saw of the highway into La Cie. Man, oh, man. I mean, it's almost impassable. It's like war zone. Uh, you want me to take a break here on time, Dave? So, yeah, okay. Uh, yesterday, I kind of got away from you a couple times. So, let's take the break on time. When we come back, Norman wants to talk about the high cost of rent. He ain't kidding. River Guardians is another topic of conversation. Then we'll speak with you. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's try line number four. Charlie, you're on the air. Charlie? Hello, Patty. Hello, Charlie. Okay, I'm sorry. I, uh, there was somebody supposed to be on before me. Patty, uh, great energy level this morning, enjoying your program. Thanks. <laughs> Patty, uh, just a little anecdote before uh, I get to my topic. Uh, those birds we've been watching, those sterlings, uh, just above our shed, there's a, a little place where, they, where they've made a nest. So they've got the shed dirtied up pretty good. And I figured it was just coming and going. They were, they were dropping the load. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I was watching a, a little one poking its head out. It's ready to leave the nest, you can tell. So, so the, the bird came, the adult bird, and, and gave it a worm. And it took the worm, and it went, it went back in, and guess what it did? It turned back on with its rear end out and let go. Now, I thought that was pretty neat. I've never ever seen that. 
Well, uh, as you heard me mention last week, my backyard in the park behind my house, it, I mean, it's bird haven. It's unbelievable. And the patio stones in my backyard need constant pressure washing, constantly. Yeah. <laughs> can, can, can you believe it would, it would actually eject, uh, uh, knowing the difference in doing it in its own nest, a little one? How, how, would, how would the heck would, would it ever learn that, I wonder? But anyway. Well, I mean, I, I think like even domesticated dogs and other animals, they don't do it where they live live or eat i think that's maybe even you know obviously some animals it's uh, no consideration given but uh, yeah fair enough yeah i i i, I thought the the adults would would probably get the clean but anyway that's that was a I want to speak about the the uh, uh, January sixth hearings and uh, what, what I saw y- y- yesterday i feel I feel compelled to do it I've, I've been on about this before there was two uh, black women who testified. They were election workers in uh, Georgia. One was uh, at it for 10 years, and the other one uh, much longer. Trump came on national airwaves and accused them of uh, corruption and uh, stuffing ballot boxes and so on. They described in detail what their lives have been like when the president of the United States comes on and says you're a, a cheat and... Uh, They've been, uh, their lives have been made unlivable. They had to leave their homes. They've had people outside throwing things at them, coming to their doors, their phone going. Uh, They can't go to the store without being accosted. Uh, It's almost like they would be better off uh, dead than have to to live a a life like that. And uh, I thought about supporters even around here, people, uh, especially evangelicals, they uh, they support him still after after all this is uh, is coming out. His own officials, his own election officials, his judges, his own people, his family all said that it wasn't a, that the election was was uh, was okay. And in spite of all that, you get these people uh, uh, still supporting him, probably because they liked his judges or they liked his stand on abortion. But it's such an anti, if you want to call it, an anti-Christ thing, and against what uh, Jesus is supposed to have taught in the, in, in the Bible, it just blows me away that they would look at one or two things like abortion or something and ignore the monstrosity. The, 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 the st- it's, it, it just blows my mind that there's people out there who can't see what's going on or don't want to. Well, they've been told that it's uh, the fix is in. It's a partisan witch hunt and what have you, even though I think if we're, you know, even I think in some of their quiet moments, they probably realize that they've been duped by that guy. But it, it's astounding. I mean, just remember, he just got what, 74 million votes last time around. And by all accounts, it looks like he's going to run again. He knew it was a lie. They all knew it was a lie. They all knew it was nonsense, and they continued to push it. And it's not just those uh, election workers. I didn't watch. I read a little bit about it last night. But secretaries of state, Republicans, Republicans, secretaries of state who did what they were supposed to do, you know, and they certified the electors and certified the votes, and they were getting threatened and people outside their homes. And I I read there's this one guy, I believe he's from Arizona, 
House Speaker, and uh, his gravely ill daughter scared to death in the House, and the wife having to chase off the protesters and the death threats, and it's just never-ending. Violence has come with this lie. People getting hurt, people getting killed. It's really quite something. I don't know what's going to become of all this. Maybe it's political theater at the highest level, but even if there's people like, I, I wouldn't mind hearing from Ginny, uh, Ginny Thomas. That's one thing for sure. Yeah. Uh, the wife of Clarence Thomas, who's of course Supreme Court Justice. Uh, this guy Eastman. I mean, what's going on here? It's just madness. And I did see someone uh, quote tweeted uh, the president or shared a screenshot from his other platform, saying he wants equal time. Please do. Please do. It'd be great to hear from both him and Pence under oath in front of that committee because this story is really just mind-boggling. And look, the Republican Party is not conservatism. We're not talking about political ideology anymore. We're talking about straight up, it's nothing but thirst for power. I mean, if someone want to try to correct me, fair ball. But I think if we're going to be honest and listen to what has been said by Trump employees and Trump appointees, then it is disastrous what's been done. Absolutely disastrous. Well, how can you dress up and go to church and listen to the message of Christ, which is uh, what they're all uh, big on, and, 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 and there's nothing wrong with that, of love and forgiveness and mercy and everything, and go and see what that walking crime wave of a man has done and still walk away and say, yeah, I can support that guy. I hope he gets in. I mean, it's so antithetical. It's so... Uh, it, it's outrageous that that, 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 that that people cannot see that that is not what Christ was about at all. It's the exact opposite of, of, of his message. Uh, look, I don't begrudge people their faith. Whatever, you know, whatever helps you sleep at night. But... I mean, we're also talking about a three-time adulterer. Um, I don't know how that kind of forgiveness. And, you know, people, this one guy, he's at me all the time. He's a, he's a Trump supporter. He's a Canadian. But he's at me constantly about these issues and saying, you know, he's the greatest leader in, in modern history. You know, not really. I mean, anyone who doesn't get on bended knee and praise him all day long, every day, he condemns. He turns his back on him. He criticizes him. He ridicules him. You know, gives names to members of his own party, whether it be uh, Lion, Ted Cruz, or all the rest of it. And yet, they just get fall right back in line. It's bizarre to watch, to say the very least. He would call everyone who didn't support him some sort of radical lefty. How does that constitute leadership? I'm just having a hard time. But as I've admitted, I've really weaned myself off of cable news, and I try not to think or watch much in the way American politics, because it is just so inferior infuriating because it's just so bloody stupid. Well, his vice president bowed down to him, he kowtowed, he did everything but 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 kiss his feet uh, throughout the, and when he when he did at the end go by the law, it was unconstitutional, everybody knew that, Trump's lawyers knew it. He sold the guy out, not just call the names, he said it was probably deserving that he would be killed. I mean, that is so beyond the pale. You, you, you Trumpers out there, think, for God's sake, open your eyes and listen. Anyway, that's all I want to say this morning. Appreciate the time, Charlie. Okay, sir. Take Thanks. care. Bye-bye. Look, uh, I generally don't care who anybody supports in the political arena. But it's, you know, again, the person or the party you support doesn't have all the answers. They just don't. Nobody does. But it's the unwavering support. And I do believe Republicans are not conservatives. The c- conservatism is not that. It's just so weird to watch. It's kind of frightening, too. Uh, let's go to line number two. Norman, you're on the air. 
Hey, good morning to you, sir. How are you today, Patty? I'm very well, thanks. How about you? I'm doing okay. I'm, you know, kind of, kind of upset, and uh, you know about the rental and the cost of living. You know, here in St. John's is pretty crazy. But uh, first thing I like to say, uh, the man that you were just speaking to, keep your faith, buddy. Keep your faith because I'm a, I'm a religious guy too. I'm into do the religion stuff too. Different kind of way, but I do believe. <laughs> anyway, Addy, the rent is really extremely high, man. Like, I'm looking right now, I'm living in a place now, and I'm discomfort. I don't like the rules here. Like, it's very, very, very strict. And the people are basically 10 years older than me. Uh, I moved into a place, as I'm not going to tell you where I moved into, but I moved into a place, and the rent was pretty reasonable. But the rules and regulations were pretty strict. And I had to uh, eliminate something that would basically give me comfort and, you know, control my, uh, my mental state. I had to basically give them to a friend to take care of. And now I'm on the hunt for another new apartment again. And I'm looking, and as I got the cable and everything in my house, and I'm looking at my computer, and I'm looking at all the housing units. And everything is from 900 and over a thousand dollars, Patty. Like you know, the cost of food is up. The the, the cost of gas is mad. How can somebody expect to get money from somebody because of the rent price? Like a thousand dollars a month. I work in the winter time. I'm clearing about twelve hundred dollars. Okay, so say about gives a man a thousand dollars or. Uh, my whole twelve hundred dollars, the whole twelve hundred, that's one check to live in a house so I can have comfort and, you know, have a place to live. Okay? Okay, and then the following check that you get, here it is, you got to pay your light bill, you got to pay your phone bill, you want your better entertainment than your cable, so uh, that's another bill there, right? But I mean, like, the, the main focus of my conversation with you, sir, is. The rent. Why is the rent so extremely high? I guess there's a, a variety of reasons as to why that will be. Uh, tenancy, the vacancy rate is is way down. So this time last year, there was 7.5% vacancy, and now it's about 3% or possibly even less. Sometimes the, the rental market gets pretty easily manipulated. We'll talk about supply, and I do know that with rent just growing across the country, we're seeing far too many stories of people being evicted simply so the rent can be jacked up, or people who have been living in one apartment or another, and they're getting a whopping big increase in the rent. How is that easily justified? Not so. You know, there will be an increase in the mortgage rates, and so the bill for the landlord has increased. But to the amount for $1,000 for a basement apartment, probably not. So... Not all, not all landlords are created equal, and some of them are just pretty shady people. But the, the, the rent and the inability for so many people to even get a spot. There was a story, Lady in Paradise, with her basement apartment, had 400 requests for people to come see it. 400 for a basement apartment. The scramble is absolutely real, no doubt about it. But see, but, but, but I don't, but, but I don't understand is, and every person here in my home, in our home, it's our home. We all live here. It, it's, uh, it's just a, basically minimum wage, basically, because I, I'm just a regular person that works minimum wage. I'm not making 150000 a year or $100,000 a year. You know, I'm making basically what most people that are working minimum wage jobs are making, basically. 
And uh, like right now, I'm looking, and, and 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 it's another thing too. I'm sending out messages after messages after messages and after messages, and I get back one or two messages. And like you just said, uh, when you get the messages back, they says, "Oh, I got 400 people looking at the apartment." Because people are going out and they're trying to find a place to live. It's affordable in their budget, so they can also have, you know, a little bit of life, too, besides not just working, going home and sleeping, you know. And that's it. They, they got no life because that's what's happening. And uh, like I said, it's just, I just find it, like, for our economy here in Newfoundland, you look at our economy here in Newfoundland and what the people are living on here in Newfoundland, it seems to me like the people on fixed income and the ones that are on the set income, whatever what the case may be, they got hurt or the, whatever, they seem to be doing better than the ones that work. Yeah. Uh, Norman, just very quickly before I have to say goodbye, what sort of uh, restrictions were you facing in some rental that made it not uh, the place well, for you? The rental, I, the rental I was in, uh, well, I'm too, uh, is basically a lot of elderly people. I picked a bad spot, that's all. And uh, anyway, I wasn't allowed to have, not allowed to have a barbecue there, not allowed to have it there. I was down listening to my, I, I, I got a stereo here, man, 300 watt stereo with 250 watts per sound, and I listened to heavy metal. I can't, my peaceful, my enjoyment, my, my my so-called mental mental state of mind, basically, it's okay. like it was all just ripped away from me. And there it is. Okay, you're living in an institution. It feels like right now, the way I live, and with the rules and regulations that are put down in place, I feel like I rented an institution. Okay, uh, I wasn't expecting heavy metal to be the genre of choice for you, Norma. But uh, who are a couple of your favorite bands? Oh, I like some few of them, but I'll read them up now to hear that. Most of them is American, most of them. Okay. Uh, let me see. Uh, Are we talking old school knock metal? Uh, knock them, knock, knock out, line, line. Uh, creeps of scares, uh Sea dogs. Oh, I, mostly what I like in the heavy metal music is the, 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 the bass guitar and the, the, the sound it makes and uh, the way they puts it together it's just the way it puts, it's like it sounds like thunder rolling through the, through the clouds hey man I don't mind a little metal either you know some old school stuff some Iron Maiden Judas Priest those types of bands we yeah, cut yeah, our teeth yeah, on for the metal anyway it's good to have you on the show uh, Norman I wish you well sir and crank it up to 11 well like, like I said though we, we got we got Patty we got to put something in place on the rent thing, though, it's got to be some way, somehow, we got to come to a compromise on the extremely high. Because people are, like you said, it's only 3%, whatever, on the street. I heard that there's a lot of people living in them shelters. But, but, but you know, we it's it, it got to come to a draw because people, a lot of people out there is not making enough money. Understood, Norman. I appreciate your time. i got to take one more before we take a break, sir. All right. Thank you. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, so Craig dropped off. Where was the accident on the Outer Ring Road, Dave? He's gone. David? Um, Craig is gone to tell us about the accident, so I'm going to go ahead and take a break, okay? Uh, we are going to do that when we come back. Paul, appreciate your patience. He wants to talk about the River Guardians. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Paul, you're on the air. 
Hello, Paddy. How's it going today, sir? Very well, thanks, Paul. How about you? Great, boy, great. Uh, <clears throat> just a couple of uh, things. First of all, uh, I'd just like to uh, commend Mr. Clifford Small. Uh, he seems to be uh, not afraid, uh, doing great work there in Ottawa for us. It's unfortunate, of course, the, the SEAL bill, uh, the SEAL management uh, bill didn't pass. You know, sometimes uh, to get something like that passed is a first step, and then, you know, you let uh, you let the, the team players on the committee and stuff work out the details. But anyway, you know, as a salmon angler, I am uh, a bit disappointed, but anyway, that, that's that. Um, I do want to talk about the fishery guardians. Uh, it's It's been an ongoing issue here. Now, pe- people call them river guardians, but we know, I think, logistically, they're fishery guardians because they cover more than just the rivers. Anyway, Patty, uh, Mr. Ken McDonald got back to us. Um, I guess he was given, you know, kind of a verbatim speech from Ottawa that, you know, the contract is the contract, yada, yada, yada. Uh, I went back to a lawyer friend of mine, and she said, Paul, like, you know, things are amendable because this wasn't about contract negotiations. This was about an actual investment. And, Patty, let's look at this for an example. So you have a business, and it brings in two or $300 million a year. And I'm, you know, an employee working for you, and uh, – you asked me, you know, should we invest, you know, a couple of, you know, a couple of million dollars just to keep, keep, the, you know, keep it all going, especially when it's, uh, you know, a natural resource. And I say no. I mean, what would you do with me? You know, uh, a, a good question to ask. And, you know, the, the minister, I am going to cut her some slack because I think we have the problem figured out. Uh, I do believe a few of us have the problem figured out from what I've been hearing. And it's with uh, White Hill St. John's and whoever's in charge down there. Uh, Patty, I think, should be ashamed of themselves. Appar- you know? Uh, how does any, if, what if we're, we're calling it blame, how does it rest there at the DFO offices on the White Hills? Well, uh, the, the director of conservation protection, whoever he or she is, apparently was once a guardian. But, um, you know, Goody Hutchings' team, Ken McDonald's team, I know for a fact, they questioned. Uh, they went back because, uh, you know, when Barry Ford met there a couple of years ago with uh, the six or five, actually, uh, MPs, and they sent a letter on behalf of Newfoundland and Labrador, you know, the anglers, and basically the, the resource. They supported it. It got shot down. <clears throat> Myself and Barry said, no, no, we're not taking this. We went back to, to Ken McDonald and said, you know, here we go, and, and let's go again. So uh, the politicians and their teams phoned White Hills, and here's what they were told, Patty. The, the, the fishery guardian program is great. Doing fine, don't need any changes, yada, yada, yada. Now, we know for a fact, and like I said, as a spokesperson, I've spoken to many guardians, and I'd say 90%, um, you know, they're unhappy with, with you know, the, the conditions. I, I know using your own vehicles at work, there's insurance things. But here's an example, Patty, this year. <clears throat> so they got an increase in the mileage rate. You know, they went from 45 cents to 50. But but in the end, the, the director cut the actual mileage n- number. So they went from 300 kilometers a week down to 250. Do you happen to know how they came up with the number $5 million? Because the Guardians is a private operation. They're, they're signed a contract. I can't remember the name of the company now that has this particular contract. But it's $5 million bucks. So are, is it splintered out, or does DFO make an independent decision year by year what that contract will be valued at? Or is it a set number? Like, Do you happen to know how that works? 
that he's been has been a set number apparently for the last thirteen years. Okay, it hasn't changed. There's been no new money invested. Now, I do know uh, the the Fishery Guardians their, their wages are fine. There's no complaints there, but there's been no new investments. But at the same time, you know it's fifteen weeks. We've beat around the bush, you know, uh, so many times. They're they're laid off. Um, before the salmon have spawned, they're hired on after the season opens. For example, you know there, there's very little uh, people, you know, very little enforcement on the on the ice fishing, and a lot of the, you know a lot of the big trout are gone, especially on the Avalon Peninsula where once there, you know people are taking too many, Patty, and, and the stories, like you said one time. Um, I think there's more poaching that, that, you know, that, than we realize. So, Patty, the, the, the politicians phoned in, and Whitehill said everything is fine, and we know it's not. And something's got to change down there. I mean, I mean, White Hills, the Conservation Protection Division should be going to the minister. Listen, you know, you invested $340 million into a Guardian program, Indigenous, uh, last fall. You know, give us 2 or 3 or 4 or $5 million. We want to keep these folks on right till the end of the season, right till the salmon has spawned, the end of October. Uh, we want to have them on in the beginning of the year. Patty, you know, and Barry Fordham has been saying this. Once the resource is gone, it's, it's going to take a long time for it to come back, like the codfish. Once this resource is gone, and, and Minister Minister Hutchings, uh, Goody, uh, a very smart lady, she's supposed to go back to the minister now. She's in charge of economic rural development. I mean, the Atlantic salmon and the trout and the fly fishing, you know, that's what keeps rural Newfoundland going in the tourist season. And, and she can't afford to lose that. So we're hoping she's going to go to the minister and say, listen, you know, Maybe audit the EFO Whitehill. See what's actually going on down there, because I'm starting to wonder. We're, we're starting to wonder, like, you know, the, 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 it's coming from somewhere. And for Ken McDonald to come back to us and say, listen, you know, here's what, Whitehill, here's what the EFO said. Uh, the contract is the contract, but it, it's, it's about an investment. Another example, Patty, Ken McDonald announced um, brand new office, Avalon West, where I'm originally from out that way. You know, uh, DFO, they, they, they haven't even opened it. Millions of dollars in taxpayers' money. They 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 say they use it as storage space, and they're renting. I don't know. They're renting offices in in Bay Roberts. Taxpayers' money. You can't make it up anyway. So I'm hoping, and the challenge is out there to the to the minister, uh, Minister Hutchings. She's going to come back. Um, go to go to. Uh, sorry, not the minister, but yes, yeah, she is a minister. Go to Minister Murray, and come back with a plan because um, Patty wants the resources gone. We're in trouble, and. and you know, go ahead, sir. No, no, I was just going to agree with you 100%. So, you know, to think that it's doing what it's intended to do to protect the rivers and the stock, the wild stock, obviously isn't working. I mean, no, all the, the poachers, they know who you are, when you're going to be there, and they know exactly when you're going to be hauled off the river, and then off they go. So it's, I don't know. But what I'd really like to know is the question that, that I asked you about. How yeah. do they come up with a number for the contract? You know, are they reverse engineering it, do the best you can with $5 million, or having a look at how many guardians, what the pay per kilometer should be, the extent of the season, and then come up with a number? Or, as I said, are they simply saying $5 million, do the best you can with it? Because that seems a pretty half-hearted approach for conservation. I appreciate the time this morning, Paul. i got to get off to the news. Thanks, buddy. All the best, buddy. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Very quickly, before the news, uh, line five, Craig, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, how are you? Great, sir. You? Goodbye. Uh, I guess it was probably 15, 20 minutes ago, I was just approaching uh, Topsail Road, turn off, heading west on the outer ring, and uh, the right lane is barricaded off there, a couple of cop cars, looks like there was an accident, I think a single vehicle, but anyways, just a heads up for everyone to slow down, uh, yield, uh, and use caution. 
always helpful advice, and hopefully there was no one hurt in that particular accident. So I appreciate the time, Craig. Appreciate that yep. call. Thank you. No problem. Cheers. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the education system. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the opposition house leader for education. That's Barry Petten. Uh, good morning, Barry. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you? That's bad, you. I'm good, thanks. <clears throat> Patty, I just wanted to call in a couple things I want to talk about. But first and foremost, I want to wish all students and teachers and parents alike a safe and happy summer. It's been a very challenging year. It's been a very challenging two years, actually, and the school year is wrapping up. I felt uh, I just wanted to pass along those well wishes to everyone. Hope you have a safe, enjoyable summer. Uh, on that note, as well, Patty, on the education topic, of course, and, and earlier this week, uh, uh, the minister in the province announced a symposium, which is targeting, I guess, post-secondary, the effects the pandemic has had on as children are progressing and moving into post-secondary, which I, I, I think it's a good thing. It's something that I, I spoke to you about, I believe, several months back. It was an issue that uh, gaps in education. Due to the pandemic, and uh, I mean, we've seen uh, two atypists from 2021, I believe, but the minister had advised that there was you know, pro- certain uh, curriculum was being skipped. It was, you know, they, were, they had concerns, I guess, back over a year ago. So I'm glad to see they finally are, are addressing it and moving in the right direction. And let's hope that good things come because I do believe this pandemic has had a, a drastic impact on children, especially. And when those in their entering post secondary, there's no doubt. Well, Patty, I believe that I guess probably what I'm not hearing, and I think it's a word you're bringing up, is the K-12 as a whole. Because, I mean, uh, you know, building blocks, you know, you learn that you hear it all the time. You know, what you learn in grade 5, you use in grade 6 or grade 7. And Just so before forth. we go too far, you're, you're talking about the impact on children during the pandemic. Are we talking educational impact? Absolutely. Is that, that folks? Okay, go ahead. I'm yeah, yeah. Sure. Patty, I suppose we could go all broad on that. But, yeah, I'm focused on the education piece today, yes. And with K to twelve, like I say, it's building blocks. I mean, you know, it's grade five, but you learn grade five, you learn in future grades and what have you. And I mean, so they're important pieces. We all know. I mean, back in my school days, you remember certain things you learned. You didn't know what you're learning for, but of course, of course, you used it down the road. And I believe that's that needs to be just as much attention needs to be given to that as it does with this symposium for post secondary. Even though that's a good thing, I do believe that that we need to broaden it and include K to twelve and. Because, I mean, I, I don't know if we're going to see the full effects, what the pandemic has done to the children and the effects on their education until probably several years down the road. No doubt, it's like we say, it's been a very challenging time, and no doubt it's going to have some impacts. I mean, and everyone have done what they can, I guess, in the, from the school perspective, from teachers and students alike. But, it's a, it, you know, it, it's a challenge, and it's something that, you know, I think that the, you know, the province needs to pay just as much, equally as much attention to that, probably even as much or probably even more to the younger grades too, to... Uh, you know, make sure that there is a they do catch up, and they're, they're not at a loss in, in future years. How how does the department itself approach that type of issue? Because I get it, the Department of Education and the minister responsible obviously obviously has an important role to play. But how do you allow the Tony Stacks of the world, the various committees, the development of curriculum, to attend to that much more than a politician? How would the politician, how would the minister be involved in those types of approaches? Because the people in the classrooms, they know what's going on. You know, it's one thing to have a captive audience, as they say, you know, while you still are in the K-12 system, they'll understand what was taught in grade five, make accommodations at the beginning of grade six. But that's not ideal. But I just wonder what role the, the minister would play. If you were the minister, what approach would you take to that as opposed to the Tony Stacks and the teachers and administrators attended to it with their knowledge of the education system intimately, boots on the ground, so to speak? 
Yeah, fair point, Patty. And I mean, as education minister, I mean, the buck should stop at the minister above Tony Stack and all involved. But at that point, uh, that's something else. I mean, recently the province of Ontario, uh, they put out a plan. I mean, included tutoring access for children. I mean, reading intervention programs, mental health supports. I continue with online options. These old things don't happen unless the minister gives approval. Oh, 100%. I'm not backing him out of the equation. He's the minister of education. <laughs> I'm just curious, what, what do you think the balance is between the administrators and the minister to understand what's appropriate, what's required, given the fact they were in the classroom this year and they know what they taught, they know what they missed, they know what the implications will be from moving from 6 to 7, from 9 to 10, and the most tricky one for me is from 12 to post-secondary. I don't even know how prepared the three years of pandemic education I've left these dispatch of high schoolers. That's the trickiest one for me. Yeah, and I mean that's why the symposium, and, I, and I'm referencing, like you know, I give credit there. That's that's a good that's a good start, no doubt about it, because you're getting first-hand information. As you say, the minister wouldn't be the boots on the ground, so to speak. He'd be depending on the people who have the boots on the ground to advise him. But ultimately, the minister has the you know he pulls the strings on what can happen, what can't happen, the funding, and what have you, and gives the ultimate direction. So you know, reaching out to the people that are affected most. The parents, obviously, the parents have seen it firsthand in the head home with their children, some children in older grades, some and, and the teachers alike. That's why I think that when you're looking at the symposium from you know for post secondary, I think you should have a full arm symposium probably for all all age levels because it's more than post secondary. And I agree with you. Post secondary is huge. But what you someone missing grade nine year could have an impact on them in grade twelve as they leave in the post secondary in, in a couple of three years time. That's my point on the building blocks. So I think it's a you know, it's a full-on approach, Patty, but I think ultimately the minister can, can make those things out with the right direction and get, and, you know, and, and, and feeding off the right people, the people that are in the know. And that's ultimately, ultimately, I think any, uh, you know, in, in you're in the portfolio of a minister, I think is, you know, it's a listening exercise a lot of times. You're taking advice from the experts around you, and then you're making the rest, best decision that, you know, fits fits in the financial box and the, I guess sometimes, the, you know, the, the political or the will of the you know, administration of today. So, but I mean, you need to take you need to take their advice. But I think you need to reach out to a broader group than just one day for post-secondary. And of course, every student is absolutely unique. The children that need, or the students that need some additional supports, whether it be for reading and comprehension or mathematics or whatever it is that they're struggling with, and even more so now after these three years. Not every family has the ability financially to take on a tutor. I mean, that can be a pretty expensive exercise. So the reading intervention programs in Ontario and some tutorial support, all of that makes absolute sense to me. And I wonder what kind of conversations are actually happening at the upper levels of recommending to the minister to uh, loosen the purse strings, to offer some of these things. You know, if that's the advice that Tony Stack would bring to the public or administrators or individual teachers or the uh, Newfoundland Labrador Teachers Association, it would be nice to know what kind of advice they're giving to the department about these types of additional supports. That's, that's something I'd love to know. And it's generally speaking, very hard to find out. Yeah, no, and it's a fair point, Patty. You know, I mean, it's not cliche. I think we say it all the time. I mean, you're full aware, too. You know, or you say it, too. Our youth, I mean, if you're not investing in youth, I mean, I met with a, crowd, a group of early childhood educators and whatnot recently, and, I mean, it's all about youth and right through our school system. I mean, it's the best investment you can ever make. You're never spending. It's never a waste of money, and it uh, pays you know, it pays dividends down the road, as we, as we see in other places. So I don't think there's any reason why we can't look at it in a more proactive uh, way as opposed to reactive, to, which we do a lot of in the province, unfortunately. But I think there's no reason we can't be more proactive with this one. Uh, no argument on that front. I appreciate the time this morning, Barry. Thanks a lot. Okay, Patty. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. It's Barry Patty. He's the Opposition House Leader and the Education Shadow Minister. I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. 
when it comes time for the voters of the country or the province to be polled on what matters to them most, the list looks eerily similar every single time. The economy and taxes and health care and environment and criminal justice all, and education generally polling, I know this is a provincial matter, it polls way down all the time. When, in fact, I think even if you don't have a child or anyone belong to you in the school system, K-12, to if education was much uh, higher concern for so many more people, then we take care of things uh, regarding the economy and taxes and health care and criminal justice and everything else under the sun. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Douglas Morris. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. Good morning. How are you, sir? I'm, I'm well. Thanks for asking. How about you, Doug? Uh, pretty good. Not bad. On a day like this, it's not hard not to be good, I'm sure, Patty. Just to call a couple, for a couple of minutes, uh, basically, to talk about the, uh, the passing a few days ago of uh, Jim Penny of Carboneer. Jim Penny uh, would be known to you and I'm many, many people who are listening to this this morning as, uh, as an outstanding hockey player in the area, tremendous guy, the initial captain of the Seabees back in 1958 when the, uh, the team was put together. And uh, George Faulkner came to Harbour Grace as was our first coach, as, as many people would know who are of a certain age. Penny uh, came to Harbour Grace and one of the things he really did when he started the Seabees, a very a strategic move, in my opinion, was to appoint Jim Penny, a local hockey player, he was only 17 years old at the time, as the captain of the team. And that proved to be a, a, a tremendous move because Jim stayed for, as captain for 10 years. They won four herders. And uh, back in the era, I'm, I'm sure your dad would, would remember it very well, uh, you know, uh, the CBs were, were a legend. And uh, the Faulkners and Lahey Dawes, you know, Stanley, uh, you know, all these guys, Jim Penny were all great Newfoundland athletes, great athletes and great hockey players. So I just wanted to... Uh, to pass on the condolences of myself, who I was a teammate of Jim, and I speak for many, many of his family and friends today, uh, or many friends, I should say, and, and, and teammates uh, to extend condolences to Ada and uh, the, the family, Craig and Frank uh, and others in the family. Jim was a great guy, a great teammate, a great sense of humor. I don't know if you ever encountered uh, Jim Penny in your own. I would have had the pleasure of meeting Jim Penny, as a matter of fact. So, a decade with the CBs, he played four or five seasons with the Caps as well. Right. Uh, I believe he won, I read on the Hockey Newfoundland website there maybe a day or two ago, uh, won five herders. And they talk about his legacy being carried on for uh, with the family wearing number seven. Well, that's exactly right. That's, that's very good points, uh, certainly, uh, no doubt. And, and uh, what I'd like also to say with respect to Jim Penny and, and his connection to the CBC, he, he never lost a connection. After the team fought, we won our – after he retired and all that stuff, we got the team back on track and had those glory, those golden years back in when we played the Deer Lake Red Wings and the Shore were big. And, I mean, that senior hockey in Newfoundland, as you well remember, you were very much involved in it, was a big deal. And Jim Penny was there all the time with, with the team, and he was uh, – he attended all the games, the home games and the away games, and uh, he was just always – proud to wear the CB jersey and then continue when the CB sort of when it, it waned a bit uh, he continued with his legacy coaching minor hockey and being involved in the executive so what can I say he had a great life he was 81 he was a, a member of the Masonic order too and I'm sure many of his all his brothers today brethren in, the, in, in that order would uh, would extend greetings as well to uh, and condolences to uh, to Ada so I just want to say that about Jim Penny we'll, we'll never forget him he was our captain for 10 years and uh, he was a leader a good man and uh, Please, God, and hope God will be good to him. Hockey Hall of Famer and also has established the Jim Penny Seabees Memorial Foundation. You can actually contribute in lieu of flowers. And I can't remember the email address. I wish I could, but I'll, I'll find that now in a minute. I'll give it out to the listeners. But I appreciate this this morning, Doug. Well, I appreciate that, Teddy, and your reminiscences add a lot to it. So uh, rest in peace, uh, Jim. God bless. Thank you. Good to talk to you, Jim. Uh, Doug, sorry about that. All right, there we go. As Doug Morris on the passing of Jim Penny, a pretty legendary hockey player. Um, and I wish I had the information in front of me. I did read it on the Hockey NL website. I guess that was on Monday. 
So five-time hurdler champion, long-time captain, playing for and the CBs, of course, a legend in the senior hockey ranks here in the province. And I think they're back at it again. I think they were back uh, involved with senior this season, which is always good to see. Oh, someone just sent it to me. The uh, email money transfer, if you'd like to, if you'd like to remember Jim's contribution to the CBs, uh, jimpennyfoundation at gmail.com alright there you go quick check in on the twitter feed or VOCM open line you know what to do follow us there make suggestions whatever you're into email address is openline at VOCM.com one, I have one emailer uh, questioning the merit of the early childhood education pre-kindergarten and of course he doesn't think anything makes any sense but anyway he says you know where's the benefit to that I think in places where we've seen uh, early childhood education attended to properly and appropriately and pre-kindergarten uh, courses, or pre, pardon me, pre-kindergarten curriculum, the outcomes when they do the standardized measures, you know, from province to province to province, and it happens a couple of times throughout your year, uh, your K-12 experience, but grade 8 in particular, they do well. The amount of... Uh, the development of your brain by the age of five is well understood. And so when you get the children early, and it's not just a matter of socializing like in a childcare setting, they do learn some fundamentals in childcare. Of course they do. But when there is properly developed curriculum for pre-kindergarten uh, curriculum, it goes a long, long way. Performance, the proof is in the pudding. The performance is improved when pre-K is in play. Let's go to line number one. Natasha, you're on the air. Hi. Hi there. I'm a first-time caller. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, my dad, he passed away early May. He used to listen to online all the time. Um, when I w- went to the grave site, it was vandalized, and I just want to say anyone who vandalizes grave sites, they should be ashamed of themselves. They absolutely should be ashamed of themselves. I'm really sorry for your loss. My condolences to you and your family. And you say your dad listened to the show. What was your dad's name? William Martin. William Martin. Someone told me about that. Did you send me an email by chance? Uh, no, I phoned BOCM and left a message. Oh, someone told me that. That's exactly right. I don't remember reading it. Someone told me that you had called. So I'm really sorry for your loss. And, of course, I knew your father through the program. Uh, tell us a bit about your dad. Uh, he had a heart attack. Oh, my. How old was he? He was 61. I'm really sorry for, uh, to hear this, Natasha. What sort of uh, vandalizing did you see at the gravesite? Uh, well, there was a cross down with his name on it uh, that was ripped out of the ground. And there was flowers there that was ripped out of the ground and uh, solar light. Well, uh, it's just hard to understand how some people would walk through such sacred ground and take it upon themselves to do anything but to very quickly and peacefully make their way through a graveyard. If they're using it as a pathway through, which happens all the time in certain parts of uh, the city in particular, so I'm really sorry that happened. And if you're listening to the show today and you were responsible for that, do us a favor. Go back and put things the way they were or just stay away from graveyards, period, if you don't have enough respect. Uh, just awful story. I'm sorry about this, Natasha, but I appreciate you making time for the show. Thank you. You take good care. You too. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, someone in the office did tell me that. Um, anyway, that's a sad loss. Heart attack at the age of 61. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, tons of time to speak with you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the program. Let's go line number three. Ronnie, you're on the air. Yes, sir. I just wondering. I don't know the stupid or whatever. I just wonder, do anybody here in St. John's fix stereos and amps? 
Oh, yeah. Speakers? Yep. Well, if I gave you my number, could you get someone to call me? Because I can't find no one in town to fix that stuff anymore. Well, I don't know where you've tried, but have you tried uh, Tucker's? Tucker's Electronics? Nope. Uh, look up Tucker's. They do it. I know the big AV companies do, too. Eastern Audio, Canadian AV. They do audio and video repair. Yeah. So those three for sure. What's the first one you said, sir? Tucker Electronics. Okay, and thank you very much. No problem at all. Good luck with it. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Ronnie. Bye-bye. Yeah, we do some work with Tucker's here, don't we? Oh, I see a Tucker truck out in the lot every now and then. Yeah, okay, great. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the president of the Newfoundland and Labrador Teachers Association. That's Trent Langdon. Good morning, Trent. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How you been? That's kind. How about you? Doing well, thanks. All right, so another school year come and gone for the most part. Uh, one just quick uh, happy note. It was sure nice to see the ability for graduates in grade 12 and or the school leaving ceremonies in kindergarten and grade 6 that are taking place. My wife's school had theirs last night, and everyone's just so pleased. So right the, I just want to throw that out there because sometimes there's some good news that we don't talk about. Well, and that's exactly it. This is a time of year where, you know, people are concluding and celebrating a lot of successes, and we can't forget that stuff. Uh, unfortunately, uh, myself and many others have been called to speak on a lot of uh, a lot of pressures and challenges, but it's, it's so you're right. I think we need to celebrate those things and, and be appreciative of being able to get back to them. Yeah, because when my wife got home last night, you could see that she was just really thrilled with how it all went, especially the faces on the children and the ceremonial walk into the reception area, wherever that was in her school. So, oh, quite lovely. Anyway, let's get down to the brass tacks. So, I know that you've uh, come out in support for ending the uh, K-12 rapid antigen test program, which just kind of makes sense anyway. School's out. Why would we continue that particular program? But my key area of focus, and you can bring up whatever you like, Trent, yep. is preparation. You know, what do teachers tell you about the ability to assess the children? I know modern day education has changed the way we assess people. We're no longer memorizing our times tables and the way we test uh, uh, students has changed and no publics. What do you hear from teachers about how prepared they think their children will be? Because it's not a shot at them. It's been fits and starts and stops and starts. So it's been a real handful. Well, yeah, you know, to have a, a direct answer to that comment, Patty, is her, because we, we don't know, right? We won't know for years to come, I don't think, the true impacts. And it comes down to individuals, I think. we we got to assess kids where they are. Some children have that resilience within them to, to you know, to move past this and to pick up where they left off. Others are going to need some extra supports, whether it be tutoring or extra types of enrichment activities. So we're really going to have to rely on parents and, and teachers themselves to, to assess children where they are as this, the new school year starts. But any research you read right now is, is saying that uh, the long-term impacts, you, you know, you may be anywhere from six months to a year behind uh, in terms of development. Um, and, and so that's the thing. We I think even more so, uh, and to, to go, I guess to go back to, to uh, our big push right now is, is class size. It's so important that we need to be able to keep our thumb on top of each individual student and be able to truly track where they are. Is that individual one-on-one -on -one that's going to truly assess moving forward where they are and, and what, uh, what uh, supports they truly need. Is there a formalized process in place for ensuring that the grade six grad no we know where the we know where they are not only individually but as a class for the grade seven teacher to have some idea of what they're getting themselves into 
Well, I, I know as a as a junior high uh, guidance counselor, it was quite common uh, for us to have what we call transition meetings. And so the, the feeder school would meet with us in, say, uh, April or May, and we would literally go student by student by student and get the, get the, get their file, go through the details of what they needed, and, and do that. And I would presume right now that 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 process is even more amplified because uh, those messages to and from, say, as a guidance counselor to the next guidance counselor in the next school or uh, the math department in one school to the math department in the next, that, that's really what's going to make a difference, but it's going to come down to individual instruction. And for those kids, say, come October, November uh, of next year that are really not up to par, there's going to be need to be proper supports in place for them. And, and again, it's uh, uh, if, teach, if there's enough teachers on the ground and the ratios are right, we can make sure that none of those kids slip through the cracks and that they don't fall further behind. Where are we in the teacher allocation review? Yeah, so we've been told that uh, the results are, are going to be uh, released by the end of the summer, or we're hoping to hear what the recommendations might be. But with any report from uh, from government, uh, we need to make sure uh, that you know the recommendations are in line with uh, with what truly is needed in the system. But also, once those recommendations are made, that they're implemented, uh, because the last thing we want is key recommendations that are going to say improve access to mental health services or increase access to uh, uh, special education services in our system and they then they just collect dust on a shelf that's that's of no benefit to anyone so we you know there there has to be uh, accurate recommendations but there also has to be follow through the, the class size issue, of course, is as old as the hills. We talk about it all the time. But it gets further complicated when we talk about class composition. Is that part of the teacher allocation review at all? Because we can have set number and hard cap on the number of students, but that does not address what is a really tricky situation for a teacher to navigate and the numbers of assistants that might be in the role and the different level of needs and or exceptional students that are not getting what they need regarding composition. So is that part of this at all? Uh, 100%. And I, I would argue that is the biggest issue, Patty. You know, whether you've got 10 kids in front of you or, th or 35, the composition of that room is truly what makes teaching uh, challenging at this time. And, uh, you know, the, the society we're living in right now, the social media piece, there's so many other barriers and layers put onto, onto teaching that it makes it difficult. But uh, we truly need to look at allocations from a needs-based perspective versus, say, pure pure budgetary uh, uh, approaches. And, uh, and moving forward with all this kind of thing, the, you know, the, I just recently got an email from a teacher this week saying uh, uh, she uh, she's teaching French immersion. And through the years, French immersion, the, the sizes ended up being generally smaller. But now we're seeing class size in French immersion, as an example, up in the 25 and the 30 range. And uh, she's, she truly feels she's unable to meet the needs of all those children at this particular time. And so she's going beyond every single day to try and make it work. But the needs are getting heavier and heavier. Uh, again, I've said so many times before, Patty, the, the school uh, or the classroom of, of 2022 is certainly not 1992 or, or 1982. Totally different setup. Uh, let's move out to what was your focus area as a teacher, as a guidance counselor. Sure. We hear so many stories, whether it be for Canadians in general and the levels of anxiety and worry. But, you know, even the allocation one to talk about guidance counselors, I, st I still think we're in and around the 1 to 500, uh, yes. as opposed to the recommendations, which are much older than a decade of 1 to 333, which we've never come anywhere close to. What's been the implication inside the schools this year? What are you hearing from guidance counselors? Because... The struggle is real, to say the very least, and we know more and more children, you know, missing school because you had a, a rapid test positive. There's been lots of children miss school because they are stressed to the max, whether it be just uh, simple anxiety or trying to cope with the pandemic or whatever the case may be. 
Right. So, the, you know, mental health services are, are lacking in our schools as it is. Now, government has increased it in the last couple of years uh, due to the pandemic. And as I said, you know, there's obviously a need for more guidance counselors and, uh, and more administrative supports to, to make sure schools are running appropriately. But there's no commitment to it uh, continuing on past this. And there needs to be a long-term investment in that in our schools. Uh, but speaking as a guidance counselor myself, I do know that uh, the day-to-day critical crisis things that come come across your desk totally interfere with, say, you know, widespread guidance initiatives you might be planning on doing, support for classroom-based learning versus, uh, uh, you know, the one-on-one. So the one-on-one and the family-based needs that are coming through our schools, in many ways, uh, counselors and teachers themselves are, are becoming social workers, and we're, we're really in support of families and helping families through their individual circumstances. And, and there really needs to be an investment in that and a, an identification and a respect for the amount of, of need that is in our system right now. And it doesn't matter where you go in the province. It could be Metro, it could be, it could be Labrador, it could be uh, on the coast anywhere. It's, 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 it's equal. But the composition piece, back to your earlier point, is that uh, the needs are high. Uh, give me a better understanding of the pressures that are falling to teachers with the lack of access to a guidance counselor or repeated access to a guidance counselor. I know of many teachers who are friends of mine, and they tell me that's become the newest, most pressurized point of their school day. Right. So you know, just imagine, just, so just try to visualize, you got 30 kids in front of you. One of those students is having a really difficult day. If there's no guidance counselor in, in the building, which is very common in this province, by the way, because, you know, we have some, uh, there may be a situation where one guidance counselor has a service three, four schools, and they're only in that school once a week. So in the, mid- mid- uh, in the midst of a, a critical incident, uh, generally the guidance counselor is contacted. That student may go with the guidance counselor. The counselor may come through the room, all around confidentiality, obviously. So having that professional in that building to deal with a crisis that comes up. Say you have a, a student that is suicidal in the moment. That teacher feels the pressure of not only keep the class together, but deal with that situation. And and many of our teachers are feeling that, uh, you know, uh, they, they're trained in mathematics and all these other things, whereas guidance counselors are trained in mental health services and that's why we need those people on the ground and uh, the suicidal ideation uh, those types of things they're happening a lot more frequently than people might think in the in the average public so that's that's the service that's provided in schools from day to day Um, I I know and maybe not everybody knows that the school board actually has a team of educational psychologists as well I don't know how widely they're utilized but have we lost a number of those psychologists uh, similar to what we've seen in Eastern Health and their 45% 45% vacancy. Do you happen to know? Well, there's, there, there are several uh, positions not, not filled right now. I know uh, Labrador is really hurting around the educational psychologist piece, to my knowledge. Out of uh, between four to five positions, there's only one filled currently. Um, and and uh, our educational psychologists are, are consultants. They, they do a lot of work around assessments. So, um, you know, essential service. And if we can't even fill those positions, we, we need to make sure that ample recruitment is happening that there's opportunities for people to move into those jobs. Uh, it's the overall psychological services approach because no matter if you're a classroom teacher, guidance counselor, educational psychologist, uh, guide, or, uh, sorry, administrator or principal, everyone, you've got to look at the social emotional uh, resilience and, and uh, stability in that building. That's number one. Then you can get to curriculum. Okay. I, I guess maybe two quick ones before we go. Yeah, sure. Um, If I recall correctly, there was a deal struck with the province in Labrador regarding teachers. Is there a standalone contract in a part of Labrador? Yeah, there is. So right now there's a Labrador West contract, and then there's a provincial contract for oh. everybody else. And that's that's been long standing, and that's there's a lot of historical context around that. Uh, but uh, yeah, there's the, we uh, so generally what would typically happen a contract would be 
this is how it usually goes is there the provincial contract is dealt with then the the lab west yeah okay and last one when would the teacher allocation review be completed well like as i we're hoping the end of the summer and uh, we it was supposed to be done by last christmas but then there was some delays and so on but uh, we're you know we we asked for this uh, there there was no uh, commitment to this until we we made uh, made sure that it was in the public and it was pressure to get this done because the the allocation model right now the formula is well over a decade decade old and uh, the system that's in place that is is money-based versus needs-based is just not working so we're really um, anxiously awaiting the results of that uh, of that allocation review well let's hope it's done sooner than later because what we can't afford to happen is teaching positions not filled on day one I mean that's something that I'll never be able to wrap my mind around is how we have so many homeroom teachers in particular not in place on the first day of school when you get off to a slow start it takes a while to catch up yeah, and Patty, we never even got into this substitute teacher shortage in this province right now. Well, that's let's get a, into it. That's a discussion in and of itself is that uh, uh, people aren't seeing the, the hidden reality in this province where schools are operating, but we're generally under capacity when it comes from a teaching perspective in our schools. We might have two, three, four, five teachers out in some buildings, and as a result, teachers are being expected to cover off. It's, it's not uncommon right this day and age for uh, a grade uh, a teacher to walk in and have their lesson plan ready, but they're told as they walk in, okay, you're losing your prep period today, you have to cover off that and by the way grade fours are going to be in with you um, for the morning so you know the coverage piece is heavy the extra duty is heavy Uh, we're short-staffed and we're heavily reliant on retired teachers right now to come back into the system and substitute as you know memorial university uh, provided their interns which is great but we're also relying on emergency supply and what that is ultimately is uh, in certain parts of the province where there's no trained teacher you can um, or the school district hires a uh, uh, emergency supply teacher who ultimately needs a, a grade 12 uh, diploma and uh, you're obviously your criminal checks and so on but other than that you've got an unqualified individual going into the classroom simply because there's no other qualified person around so that's a heavy recruitment and retention issue in this province and the retiree issue if I remember correctly the government allowed retirees to come back in the classroom for an expanded number of days I think up to 90 without jeopardizing their pension yeah, and that was extended even further because there okay. was such an issue, yeah, that uh, – uh, and, and, you know, we, we fully respect our retirees. You know, they, they bring so much uh, experience and, uh, and knowledge to the system that having those individuals walk back in is, is a godsend. But it's not a fix. We should have active teachers filling those voids. I know when I started teaching, to get a sub day, you'd, you'd, you'd pay money to get it, whereas now we're really struggling. And even in St. John's Metro and Gander and, and the, some of the bigger hubs, there's a real uh, lack of substitutes in those areas. So it's a major issue, and, and the system is feeling it. It's not, it's not business as usual in our schools right now, believe it or not. I appreciate the time this morning, Trent. Thanks a lot. Anytime, Patty. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, Trent bye. Langman. He's the president of the NLTA. Let's take a break. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Edwin. You're on the air. Good morning, Patrick. Welcome to the how, show. How are you today? I'm doing okay, thank you, sir. How about you? Oh, okay. I'd like to speak for a few minutes about the the importance of the seniors issues. Okay. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, as you know, I live at Bishop's Gardens, and that's in a lovely area of town. And... Uh, uh, Seniors' residences, uh, both for the mentally disabled residents and uh, elderly residents uh, uh, and seniors, should be built near restaurants, churches, 
and uh, and uh, uh, stores, and uh, also there should be a, a more free drug prescription programs uh, with walkers, walking canes, and uh, wheelchairs provided. And we need uh, we we also need a good go bus service, which we have, and a good taxi service. Yeah, the go bus can be improved. That's for sure. Um, uh, well, I I had the word improved, but uh, I don't like to use that word because they are pretty good. Okay. That's good. I'm glad it's working for you, Edwin. You talk uh, about... Okay, I, I don't get out of the specs now because uh, i got to look after my health because I have dialysis. Okay. Do you get out at all? Uh, no, not lately. That's too bad, because I remember some of our uh, conversations in the past. You talk about going to church and some other places to see some friends. Yeah, uh, Actually, uh, I have one person uh, by the name of Gail that drops off my bulletins, church bulletins. And uh, my clergyman says to really thank God for that. Well, I'm glad you're getting that uh, bit of help for sure. And you mentioned uh, walkers and canes and the like. Is there anything in that world that you need, Edwin? Uh, no, I, I, do, I do use a walker. Okay. Yeah, and uh, uh, I, I have a couple of canes. Yeah. Okay. Now, Bishop's Garden seems like a nice place to live. I've heard some great stories coming out of there. Yes. Uh, uh, you can go online and you can get a uh, picture of me uh, uh, out with a vintage car. Oh, nice. What kind of car was it? Uh, it was. Uh, it was. Some kind of car dating back to the uh, 1960s and uh, uh, 50s. Why, 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 what was going on there for you to be in that car? Oh, the, uh, I, I was standing next to it. I didn't want to go up close because uh, I was afraid my walker would uh, dent it. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I, I had a picture of the uh, car in the uh, car show on Saturday. Nice. That sounds like fun. Yeah. Okay, I'll let you go and take another caller. I appreciate your time, Edwin. You take good care. All right, bye-bye. Here we go. Um, So I just popped up the website to see if I could see a picture and maybe determine what kind of car that was. Anyway, I'll have another look around. Uh, Let's go to line number one. Clayton, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm doing okay. How about you? All pretty good, boy. Patty, I wanted to tell you about uh, I suppose I'm going right now This, if I'm not saying right, help me I was going to tell you about Newfoundland and Labrador housing Okay. I live on Veterans Road I'm down here 22 years now we had a storm Larry blew down the Iceberg Alley tent that's right Larry, the Iceberg Alley when when the tent blew down with Larry, I think it was Larry the Storm, that was the name of it. That's right. Yeah. But my window blew in here in the apartment, and it knocked my television on the floor. It was 4 o'clock in the morning. 
and I pushed, happened to get the window back up. I had to cut the circuit breaker because it was water and pictures going off the wall. And now I'll stop there and, and let you have a few. few well, I'm days. just listening along to hear what kind of damage you suffered with Larry. So the window yeah, blew in and hit the TV and the like. So what happened after that? Uh, I had I had to try to get the window back up till they came down to fix it the next day. Okay. Okay. Now, I got a water leak uh, outside the building where my windows through my kitchen. It's a white bag dragged into the wall there. The wall is gone. Uh, you follow me? So the wall is gone, meaning that it's... Yeah, uh, yeah right, right, right by the window okay. off, the kitchen, off mm-hmm. the kitchen. And it's a white bag dragged in there with a bird or Rodner or whatever you want to call them. But, you know, and... The buildings were in hard shape, Patty. There's not a window in the brigham buildings. It's all rotted out. Yeah, and of course, if you have the water damage, you're going to eventually going to have the mold problem. So, no, just no, paint no. me a picture. What's this sure. white? What's the white bag? Pardon me. What's the, the white, white bag? bag? The white bag. Well, it was dragging in there by a bird, or a mouse, or probably a rat. I don't know, Patty. Ugh. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, where is the bag? It's sticking out through all. Are you able to haul it out? No, because there'll be a hole there. Oh, I see. So it's plugging a hole. Oh, my. Yeah. Well, it must have been a bird picked it, I guess, and they want to go in the nest. I don't know, Patty. Could be. (laughs) Oh, my, Patty. I don't know if I'm saying the right thing on open line. But, you know, what can I do? Now, the television, in the meantime, they would not replace that. I went to my insurance, and my insurance was $500 deductible, okay? Mm -hmm. And I had to go into Best Buy and buy one. They had one on sale enough for $500, so I bought it, you know? So you're back in business with the TV? Yes. That's good. they, They wouldn't replace that. Because that's supposed to be insurance. And insurance is $500 deductible. So I might as well have gone and bought a television like I did. You know well, what I mean? as long as you got the TV back, it's too bad it cost you $500 on the deductible. So do you have a full cable package? I got a, a water leak insurance. Yeah. I got it all on the apartment. But in the meantime, right. you know... What, what can, where, where can I go, Patty? I don't know, but when you're in a Newfoundland Labrador housing, you would imagine that they'd be the people to turn to, and if they're not well, going to help you out, I'm not sure what to say to you. No, well, there's one person here now, I can't mention her name. They got no hot water, it's three days. He's not getting no phone calls. I'm just speaking for him. I shouldn't be speaking for him, because he should be on open line speaking to you. Yeah, that's okay. You're just standing up for him, which I think is helpful. I'm doing okay, right? You're doing fine, Clayton. I'm not saying anything wrong. Nothing wrong to me. Uh, Before I have to go to the news, what kind of stuff do you like watching on television? Oh, God, I watch just the hockey, boy, of course. Yeah. (laughs) And baseball. Are you a Jays fan? Uh, (laughs) No. (laughs) 
I'm all bossy. Oh, are you? Oh. But now, in the meantime, I got my jerseys and everything hung, hung up in the living room. They don't come down till the hockey season is finished. Boston is out, but I'm a good fan, right? So you're all you're Boston Red Sox and Bruins. Yeah. Oh, what do you like? Ever? No, ever since I was five years old, Patty. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, you know. But Patty, that's all I got to say, boy, and I hope somebody hears it. Because I don't know what to do about it, honest to God. Well, I wish I could point you in some direction yeah, to get some immediate I know, help. Patty. I, I got to run to the news now, Clayton, but oh, let's see. Oh, oh, okay, Paddy, but I didn't say anything wrong, right? No, don't you worry. No, nobody will be able to phone in and say, he said something wrong. No, I never said nothing wrong. Don't give it another thought. Best kind. Okay, okay, Paddy. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye, Clayton. All right, let's take a break for the news. Do not go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the program. Well, for years, Canadians and people worldwide tuned in to see the exploits of the kids of Degrassi Street. That's where it all began. Then Degrassi Junior High, Degrassi High, Degrassi the Next Generation, Degrassi Next Class, and they are on tour. Join us on line number four is some Canadian royalty, Pat, Pat Mastroianni. He played Joey Jeremiah on Degrassi itself. He won a Gemini for his role back in 1988. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Pat. You're on the air. Oh, hello, Patty. How are you? I'm doing great. How about you? Oh, pretty good. Thank you for letting me be on the air with you today. I'm happy to have you on. I'm, you know, I was a little bit old, possibly, for Degrassi, but I'd sneak a peek because I'm the <laughs> oldest of five in my household, and there was lots of Degrassi fans in my house, I can tell you that much. You know, it wasn't just the hijinks of high school. Really looked at some pretty interesting social and cultural issues throughout the run of Degrassi, something that wasn't really part of teen dramas. Oh, you're absolutely right, Patty. I mean, I think that's why the show has such longevity, and it's been on television for over three decades. And um, part of the reason why um, Stacey Mystician, who played Caitlin on the show with myself, uh, that's why we're coming to St. John's uh, on August 5th for this um, live appearance, uh, just to connect with fans that we've never had the opportunity to talk to. And um, uh, it's a wonderful opportunity, if you did grow up with the show in the 80s and 90s and you were a fan, to come out and meet us in person. It sounds pretty cool. You know, there's another interesting uh, facet of Degrassi. For the first time ever on Canadian television, people heard the F-bomb. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's exactly what we're going to be screening uh, at our uh, appearance. Uh, we're going to play the finale of uh, Degrassi High, which was called Schools Out. And you're absolutely right. It's where the characters Snake and Caitlin both dropped the F-bomb on CBC television. It was the first time ever on a Canadian series those words have been used. And we kind of reminisce about that. We talk about the storylines. We talk about why the show ended the way it did and give the fans some closure. Because I think for the past 30 years, people still today go, what the heck did I just watch? That was the craziest series finale I'd ever seen and um, it stuck with people and uh, I, I think part of the fact that Degrassi was so memorable is because it didn't pull any punches it, it took on the, the, the hard topics and people appreciated that and people could see themselves represented on TV or uh, watch a storyline that they were dealing with themselves personally in their real lives is Jimmy Brooks going to be on tour <laughs> well Drake is not available for this specific tour uh, we are going to get him to open up for us one day though it's going to happen that's pretty cool so 
So, you know, while this was, you know, I think groundbreaking at many levels, especially when teens tuned in to watch some of the other teen shows, which was about a little bit about dating and a lot about hijinks and all that type of stuff. But when you guys dug into some serious issues and, you know, one of the boys in the hallway, I just told him you were coming on the show and he recounted an episode where someone jumped off a bridge. Was the pushback always positive or pardon me, the feedback always positive or some concerns about broaching these types of very emotional and traumatic issues? Uh, you would be surprised with some of the feedback we would get on certain topics. And unfortunately, these topics are still relevant today. And I think that's why HBO Max is actually going to reinvigorate uh, the series. They're going to bring it back as a one-hour drama. And uh, that's something that's going to happen in 2023. Uh, I don't know um, much about that particular version of Degrassi that's going to be coming out. I'm not currently involved with the project. But we are going to be talking about that with our live appearance. And we do reminisce about you know the, the storylines and the topics that we, we discussed and tackled on the series. Um, for the most part, this, this event that we're hosting is just a, a wonderful three-hour evening of nostalgia. I think we're all getting to that age where we're remembering back to a simpler time and hopefully uh, you know, we're the last of an analog generation, so to speak. Everything is so connected now with social media and the internet and um, cell phones and devices. And, and we kind of put all that stuff away for a few hours and we kind of try to make our audience feel like a 16-year-old again. Yeah, sounds great. I mean, and if we don't have these types of issues reflected in mainstream media, media, mainstream uh, entertainment, then we pretend they're not happening. We're kind of missing an important part of the conversation. You know, it's not all just about playing stickball. It's sexuality and drugs and all the things that this program addressed over the years. So give me a, ten, uh, a sense of what it's going to feel like when we put away our phone and we go to wherever. We'll, uh, we'll get to the details where you're going to be going sure, on the tour. Sure. What's it going to look like? Give me a sense. Well, you know, we again, like I said, we want to give people a break from reality. I think for a few hours, we want people to come and enjoy a celebration of not just a TV show, but a celebration of of our youth and, and, and how wonderful the 80s and 90s were to grow up in. And it's part comedy show because Stacey and I will be on stage answering questions and it gets quite uh, exciting and, and there's a lot of energy in the room. Uh, the LSPU Hall has a concession stand with beer and wine. So so it turns into the event turns into a Rocky Horror Picture Show kind of energy. And uh, I'll probably get screeched on stage, which I'm kind of looking forward to. And at the end of the day, everybody walks away with autographed pictures and a selfie with us so they can show proof that they met Joey and Caitlin live in person and we want people to walk away with a fun memory and that's really what the show is all about. Sounds super fun. It's certainly a runaway smash at probably the most uh, accredited and acclaimed teen drama in North America I would go to, uh, so far as to say. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the show Pat. Thank you so much Patty and if anybody wants more information on where to get tickets just come visit my website. It's a fan page called DegrassiTour.com and you'll get a link to the direct uh, site to buy tickets. There you go. That's Joey Jeremiah. Thanks Pat. Good luck. Safe travels. Daddy, all the best. You too. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. <laughs> How about that, right? Degrassi. Great stuff. Yeah, there was a fair amount of Degrassi consumed in the house. And I admit, I was a little bit old. I felt for the show. Uh, but certainly everybody in the country of my vintage and others familiar with Degrassi and his various iterations. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Al, you're on the air. Yes, good day, Paddy. How are you doing? Not too bad, sir. How about yourself? Not too bad, buddy, not too bad. Reason I call you today, Paddy, but I think you got uh, some pictures sent in recently from St. Bride's, uh, I won't say water, I'll say bag from Winnie and Ralph Strickland. I think you got them maybe a couple of days ago. I did, it's disgraceful. It's unreal, Paddy, but as well. And then he calls it, you know, uh, get money, we need uh, money. They spent a million dollars on that new line. And before I go anywhere else, Paddy, at one time we had roughly about six, seven hundred people hooked up to that line 
And we never had an issue with a two-inch line with pressure. That was three years ago. There was 10 and 12 people living in one house. And now we've got about 28 houses, depending on that line. And lo and behold, he gets a million dollars. And what do they do? They puts in a bigger line. So it makes sense to that. And one, some houses got one person living in them, and some houses are closed up. So, and... So Winnie the other day, apparently, just above Winnie and Ralph, there was a, a man last 30 years of his uh, life savings of uh, fishing gear. And my brother was on the fire truck, along with another good crew, which they were doing an amazing job. But apparently, the, uh, every time the fire truck uh, had the fire under control, they had to leave. But when the, when the fire truck would go empty, they had to leave and go a long ways down the road to get fire from a fire hydrant. It's not a fire hydrant. It's a, a clean-out line system at the end of the line, so clean them out. There's two fire hydrants on Branch Road. They were the first ones that was ever put in St. Bride's, and they were put right smack by the mayor's property. Really good insurance prices, I would say, when he's getting insurance on his, on his ground and everything. They were the first two was ever put in, and that's the only two fire hydrants. It's on the south side of St. Bride's coming from that dam. And so Winnie got a hold of somebody the other day, and she said about the fire hydrants, and all why the fire buddy lost it all, and the fire truck had to leave. And what they told her was that they didn't put no fire hydrants on that line on the south side to them coming from the dam because, quote, it's too much bag. Now, like, so if the, if the provincial government knew that there was too much bag, why in the name of God did they spend a million dollars for a bigger line with 28 houses and one person in each house? And one more time, we had 700 living in St. Bride's and never had an issue on the pressure. It was the same issue. And I grew up in a house with 10 of us, and just a house down from me, there was 12. And a Friday evening, everybody was having to wash in the shower, and we never had an issue with the pressure. But we had the same issue. It was too dirty, it was bad. And now, lo and behold, he goes and he puts in a bigger line and bypasses it, and passes on, comes right on down, and don't put in no fire hydrants. And that's the excuse, there's too much bag. So they knew, in other words, the provincial government knew so Sherry Gamlin, well, she's really doing her job, I must say, because I know for, for the other the PC MHA that was out there, he didn't get a spoon from the Ashfield while he was running, and this is 100% true, or not, I wouldn't say it, because it'd be somebody who contradict me. He didn't get a shovel full, and he didn't get nothing done for the no big uh, piles of money for the community of St. Bride's. But Sherry is doing her, her part, but it's what's happening is with the same disgrace of the council. What, to, what they're doing with the money. It's a disgrace. And the taxpayers' money, Patty, I really think uh, the gas tax money, that was a disgrace. That went to the council. I don't know why the... Maybe you can answer this one. The federal gas tax money go to a provincial government non-profit. Like, I don't know why that is. That'd be in place. Well, just a quick question. So the implication of the larger pipe is simply pressure, is it? The, 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 I don't know what they've done for they, they destroyed the money because they know there's nobody left there living there. There's only a few a fistful of people on us compared to what was on us. But like I just said, we had 10 or 12 people living in a house with a two-inch line. All, as I was in was a two-inch line coming down through the place. And the only two fire hydrants were ever put in were the first ones were ever put in and dropped by the mayor's property. And I guess he got really good uh, prices on his insurance. So what do Wilson then? So then Winnie and Ralph were sacking to a person on council and he's, uh, they're seriously considering about putting in an artesian well, but they were told that the world of duty mightn't get good water. But uh, anyway, they said, and then the council told him, and if you do put in an artesian well, we're still going to have to, you still have to pay water tax because he said we need the, the 
water takes money for to put out fires in case your house catches fire. And right on side of them, their neighbour lost his shed that the fire truck was fighting and he lost everything in it. But I know for a fact I watched the fire and you had, really you were getting under control. Their last, it was only last week this happened. And they used to get under control, but by the time they left and went and filled up the fire truck and got back, then she was all out of control again. So he lost a couple of hundred crab pots, all his fishing gear, ropes and everything, you name it. Neither fire hydrant. But I guarantee you there's something wrong with the, the, the destroy. And now what, what I heard this plan is the summer. This is a good one. Well, they're going to put a road. The first thing you need is a road out to the dam. Yeah, there's going to be some clean water when you put a road to the dam. And then they're going to put rocks into the dam. So that's the new filter Newfoundland is, is using. There's rocks in the dam for a filter system, is it? Like, there's literally a disgrace in the market as Alan is going out to be Well, I can tell you what. The end result of that brown water I saw coming out of that tap was really something to behold. And it's not the only community suffering from it, which is just... Plain and simple, unbelievable. Modern day Canada, 2022. Brown water and disgustingly brown. I appreciate the time, Al. Anything else you want to say? Yes, well, I'm going to say one more thing because it's not the problem with the money. The money comes because I'm going through some laboratory files and there was a lot of provincial government money came to the laboratory of St. Bride's for water since 2012 to 2015. I only got through a few years yet. But the same, the mayor of St. Bride's was down on the laboratory of St. Bride's and every check I'm coming through that the money came back from the Grants Felix Collins was the MHA at the time, PC, and every check I'm finding is for water, water system, water system, phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four. And lo and behold, when I went back in 2019, when I came home from Alberta and went back on it again, there was still no water on the wharf. So the money was spent again, same thing down the harbour, but still no water. So we you'll never, you will, Winnie and Ralph will never see, it's not only Winnie and Ralph, but that's all they got the guts to post it and say anything about it, right? Controlled by fear is a bad thing. Always is. I appreciate yeah. the time, Al. Appreciate it, Arapani. Thank thanks you. Thanks for the call. All right, bye-bye. Okay, yeah, bye. Let's go again before we go to the news. We'll go to line number one. Good morning, Lou. You're on the air. Good morning, everybody. Morning. How are you this morning? I'm doing fine, sir. How about you? You might not just understand me because my voice is a bit rough. That's okay. You go right ahead. So I'm going to talk slow to you. Okay. What I'm going to say, the Liberal government is no good to the people in Newfoundland and Labrador because they said they're going to help you for the to eat your home, going to give you money for your funds, but all you think. But they're going to make sure you're good and cold before you get you that money. Because me and my wife, and not only me and my wife, people in Newfoundland and Labrador, has a hard winter on the Liberal government. And I hope the Liberal government will never, ever get in Newfoundland again. They're the worst we ever had, and we never want to see the Liberal government get in Newfoundland anymore. They're not doing people. But the people want fixed income, the people will suffer, the people is not getting already anything, the people on the streets, they're not doing nothing for the people in Newfoundland and Labrador, even the health care. They're driving us in a hole so far as we can get. And what can you do? Nothing. 
Well, I suppose your next opportunity is when we go back to the polls, whenever that will be. Uh, and certainly there's a lot of people clamoring for more and more support, regardless if it's at the gas pumps. You know, even when they dropped half of the provincial gas tax, the very next time the PUB spoke, they jacked it up again, doing away with all those savings. You know, some one-time monies for people, depending on your level of income, to uh, fill up your furnace oil tank. I mean, it's going to help some. It's not going to help all. It's not going to be the be-all and end-all. And then other things that, that even governments can't control. Once you add in the cost of everything that's going up and things that the government does have some control over, it becomes a really unmanageable situation for a lot of folks. I hear the stories day in and day out. It's unreal. Patty, I don't want to interrupt you. No, you do whatever you want. Go ahead. But do you build a place in Cornwall, but another big premier's place for the politicians, there was no need of that. They waste hundreds of thousands of dollars beyond that. On what in particular, sorry? Uh, another office for the Liberal government. In Gander? In oh, there's one in Cornerbrook? Yes. Oh. And there was no need of doing it. Around Cornerbrook, around that area of summer. I didn't even know that was the case. I knew that they uh, opened up another office for the premier, representing the premier in Gander, I was pretty sure. I didn't know they had done the same thing maybe, in Cornwall. Maybe, maybe it was in Gander. Okay. Yeah. No, I could be mistaken. It could be in Gander. But there's no need of that. There's no need to be going on the big trips. There's no need to be on their little cars, casting up, and the taxpayer dollar got to pay for it. But everybody does, that little curve. The taxpayer got to pay for the other car. And the taxpayer is paying their wages. Remember. That's true. We pay, we put them politicians in there for these that's not we. Not the we. Not the. It's an, not we that's not them. We put them in there for look after we. Not Understood. Not we look after them at all. Understood. No. So, Petty. I'd like to thank you very much for letting me get on open night. And we had a hard winter, and I hope one of these liberal government will see what it's like. Because if they take somebody on welfare and pull them in as a premier, they might know what it's like beyond hard times. I'm sorry to hear you had a hard winter. Hopefully you have a better summer, Lou. Thank you very much, Patty. Appreciate your time. I appreciate you too. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. All right, it is indeed time for the break. When we come back, Sam's in the queue, wants to talk about kindergarten, and then lots of time to speak with you. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let us go. Where am I going to go? I'm going to go to line number two. Say good morning to Sam. Sam, you're on the air. Good morning, Betty. How are you? Top shelf. How about you? Well, if I was any better, I'd be in a coma. <laughs> okay, well, I'm glad you're not comatose for the call. What's on your mind? <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, in September, uh, you're going uh, to school, right? Okay. You, like if your kid is five years old. Mm-hmm. Okay, you can register your kids. Now, back when I was uh, registered, uh, uh, over seven years ago, it was. Uh, anyway, uh, my birthday is in January, so I couldn't get in school until I was six years old. Yeah, you have to. T- you're either five years of age or turning five by December thirty first. Yeah. Okay. Now I got a great great granddaughter whose birthday is in January. 
and she'll be five in uh, two years' time. Mm-hmm. So she's going to miss another year. You know, she's going to be six before she can get back in school, you know, or in school, I mean. You know what I mean? So, like anybody that's going to be five years old, you know, at the end of the, or just over December, should they make an exception to turn around instead of missing, uh, you know, allow them to register? Well, instead of, uh, I mean, like, uh, over half the population here in Overland is, uh, you know, got the same problem, not just me. No, you're right. Uh, the Schools Act itself says that there is no exceptions. As far as I understand, you have to be five or turn five by New Year's Eve to be allowed to register for kindergarten. I don't think there's any exceptions granted, to be honest. Yeah, so then you miss a year, uh, another year, which, uh, you know, instead of graduating a year earlier, you got to wait a year later to graduate. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. I don't know if it's, there's any benefit or harm. I mean, it might be an issue with uh, affording childcare, for instance, for another full year before they get to go to kindergarten. But I don't know if there's a benefit for being the oldest kid in the class. I was the youngest kid in the class. I don't think that was very good either. Oh, okay, great then. I could call her between the lines in kindergarten, so I got put in grade one. Uh, there was a few, uh, there was a few of us, and by the time it didn't make much difference when we were small, but as you got older, you know, there was something to be said for being a full year younger than all the rest of the boys in the classroom. I don't think it's a good idea, and that's why they don't do it anymore. Uh, I think I was the biggest, I think, in kindergarten, I think. Oh, yeah. I think, it, I think. I'm, not, I'm not sure. I was <laughs> going back a few years now, you know. But uh, no, I just thought I'd stick a needle in your arm or something like that, you know, to make people aware of it. I mean, there should be something done about it. I mean, to waste uh, a whole year out of, you know, uh, uh, just because you're going to be, you know, you're not going to be five till January or August or something like that. You know, there should be an exception made there somewhere. Yeah, and I don't think they'd make them, to be honest. Now, I can check. Uh, my wife probably knows. She was in a K-6 K to school for quite a long time. She'd know. But as far as I can remember, the cutoff dates are very, very clear. And I don't think there's exceptions made uh, any longer. But that's something I can figure out and find out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they'd fill up the classroom, that's for sure. You know, yeah. I don't know if they have crayons by then. They'll probably be going around with spray guns. No, I think the crayons are here to stay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but it's uh, that's all, right, bro. You have a good day, bud. You too, Sam. All the best. Oh, all right. Okay. Bye bye. Thanks. Yeah, bye. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's cut and dry right in the school's act itself. But I'll I'll confirm. Let's go to line number three. Edward, you're on the air. Uh, yes. Good morning, Patty. Beautiful day. It's so gorgeous out there. Yes, uh, I uh, I want to make a couple of comments uh, uh, regarding uh, what I observe uh, in uh, driving habits of a great many uh, people, in Newfoundlanders, and of course I've seen the same thing on mainland. So it's not unique to Newfoundland, but. Uh, uh, one thing that really bothers me, uh, and I see it every time I get behind the wheel of my vehicle and venture out on the highways, that people, they're either they don't know why signal lights were ever put on vehicles, or they don't know what the intention of a signal light is, because they either, uh, what I observe is they either don't use them at all to indicate to other drivers that they're making a turn, or 
they used them at the very last split second before actually they probably already started making the turn into wherever they're going and then they'll pop on a signal light and I don't know how many accidents have been caused many I expect but there's sure as heck been an awful lot of near misses Uh, and I don't know where I mean it's not taught uh, by any of the drivings in schools, I'm sure, and you're supposed to know this stuff when you do your uh, your driver's testing. But I don't know where people got the idea that you only have to put your signal light on when you're 10 feet away from making your turn. But you're preaching to the choir here because it is absolutely one of my pet peeves uh, and I don't know I shouldn't get so irritated when I see the lack of using the indicator but it happens all the time and you're right you know even if you don't use it at all that's one thing but it's the use put flicking it on as you're turning the wheel to turn into the parking lot or turn into the street is just mind-boggling to me it's probably one of the easiest things to do as a motorist is to use your indicator it's just so simple you just flick that little stick that's coming off the steering column and let's people know what your intentions are and to give them plenty of time to react to what your intentions are i just don't know why people don't do it you know there's always going to be different issues regarding speeding or rolling through stop signs or running through red lights and all they're all equally bad but it's just the mindless frustration of people not using their signals their signal like the old the blinkers I, i don't i don't understand it personally no, well, you summarized the issue much better than I could, but it, I'm, I'm with you. Like, it just drives me bananas <laughs> that people don't, like I said, they, they don't really understand or they don't care what the purpose of the signal light is. And as you said, it's probably one of the simplest things that you can do when you're driving a car is flick on your signal light. You don't even have to turn it off. It'll go off by itself. That's but, right. Uh, yeah. For the uh, most part. Uh, every now and then you see someone who will use one to merge onto the uh, auto ring road or something. And until they take that counter move with their steering wheel, you know, like yeah. if you're out in Saskatchewan, someone might be driving straight for uh, 100 miles with their signal light on. But you're right. By and large, it does correct itself. Yeah. And uh, my reason for calling you this morning, Patty, is... Uh, Maybe by voicing this, a, uh, a few people might take heat and start using the signal lights properly. And in that, if that's the case, well, then my my phone call was worthwhile. And I I thank you for taking it. I appreciate the time, Edward. All the best. You, you have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I'm alone in people being just constantly... You know, amazed with just how infrequent people are willing to use their signal light. Uh, and in the motoring behavior, you see the story on VOCM.com, I'm pretty sure that's what I saw this morning, about the RCMP and three aggressive drivers. One clock going 165 kilometers an hour in the Argentia Access Road. One clock at 159 kilometers an hour in the TCH up by Middle Gold Pond. One driving 157 kilometers an hour on the Trans Canada near Hodgewater Line. Unbelievable. One of them is only 19-year-old. So they all had their licenses suspended and vehicles seized. I know I'm probably in the minority, but I still think it's high time that in some of the notorious spots, red light cameras, speed cameras, you don't have to set a speed camera to nick everybody who's going 101. That's not what they're intended to do. You can set the parameters for when a ticket will be generated. But just imagine how many people are out there driving like that that don't get caught. 
and just luckily getting where they're going unscathed and most importantly uh, not killing anyone else while they do whatever these people had in their mind as they were driving 165 159 157 let's take a break when we come back we're going up to labrador city to speak with evelyn ryan she's the special events coordinator in the city uh, in labrador city don't go away welcome back to the program let's go line number four say good morning to the special events coordinator in the town of lab city that's evelyn ryan good morning evelyn you're on the air Good morning. How are you today? I'm grand. How about you? Oh, I'm best kind. I am phoning in this morning to just say how proud I am of our community. We're in the participation challenge and uh, presently in second place. And it's nice to see our community get out and be active once again. And uh, I wanted to do a shout out to them and also a shout out to Lords who are in first place and keeping this competition going. So we're really happy about all that this week. So what exactly is going on? There's a municipal challenge for participation? Actually, it's countrywide. Oh. And, uh, yeah, and we're uh, presently in second place and 15th in, uh, nationally. So what exactly is involved? Because participation in school, there was a variety of different events that you participated in. What exactly does the municipal challenge look like? Well, right now we're throwing off uh, different walks. We're doing mass walks. And the other day we had a mass walk and we had 500 people out, which is a great showing. Sorry, a great showing for our community to have that many people out. And we also have been having school walks. We've been doing, uh, we've had 400 people out for our school walks. People are doing their own uh, participation walks and activities. And uh, it's going absolutely fantastic. It's nice to see everybody participating. So is there anything on the line beyond bragging rights? Uh, bragging rights, um, other than bragging rights, and that's really what we're going for. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, there's a hundred thousand dollars on the line. Also, uh, you can once they the top fifty get to put in for um, to see who really why are you the the most active community. So you get to see if you might be the winner of that hundred thousand dollars. Now I know you're a straight shooter, Evelyn, but what keeps municipalities from fudging the numbers? <laughs> Well, I, I'm not sure, but I know that we have been participating, and, I, and I'm sure everybody else has. And, you know, it's a great time. Coming out of COVID, of course, mentally that helps everybody to get out, participate, be active. And uh, I'm sure everybody's being their utmost honest. I'm positive. Uh, I'm sure, too. So if, does it need to be an event organized by the town? Or if I, my crew or someone in, in our neighborhood, we go for a community walk, does that count? How do you? How do things get Everything logged? Counts. Everything counts. Oh, you sign up and you use your postal code, uh, participation, um, the participation app, which I know that everybody in Labrador City has it because I have actually stopped people on the street and asked them if they have it if they're walking. <laughs> so um, I know you once you hook up to that, it just uh, syncs with either a Fitbit or uh, your Apple Watch, or you can log your minutes yourself. If you have an organization, they can also register. And um, all those minutes are counting as well. Very cool. And so uh, how are you getting scored? Like you say that Lords is in 8th and you're in 15th, I think is what you said. So how does it get scored? By the step or the kilometer or the number of people? By the number of minutes that, the, that people are active. And you can choose what activity that you do, gardening, housework, um, working out with a group, uh, hill climbing, cycling, whatever you do counts. It sounds awesome. What else you got going on in Lab City this come home year summer? Oh, well, we have an Iron Fest coming up, and we're really looking forward to that. That's a brand-new event for us. And um, so we're having Sam Roberts' band come along with some other bands. 
and uh, it's going to be a fabulous event for us, for sure. Yeah, one of the organizers actually called and told us about that a while ago, that it was in the works. Yeah, yeah yep. good and stuff. That, it's going to be wonderful. So if you haven't got the app down yet, I want to make sure that you also get it down for your community. <laughs> uh, uh, does every community automatically participate? Because I, this is the first I've heard of it. Well, I want you to look it up, and I want to make sure that you also get the app because your steps are going to count. Yeah, as meager as they might be. <laughs> well, listen, every minute of exercise or motivation you give is, is what we need. So, you know what? We can all do it, and let's show that Newfoundland should be on top. Yeah, why not? I mean, I actually do go for a walk most every day, so maybe I'll download the app so I can get a bit of credit for it. <laughs> That's right, and you're going to give those points, and that's awesome. And like I said, hats off to Lords. They're in first place uh, provincially, and they're keeping our competition going. We're watching them, and we're keeping our eye out for them. So it's great competition. Well, go get them. All right. Well, thanks so much, and you have a wonderful day. You too, Evelyn. Take care. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. You know, every now and then, it's a funny thing, right? Like they always say, the hardest part about being active is the very first step. And there's no true words were ever spoken. Once you get into a bit of a habit, it becomes less of a chore. And it's just part of your day-to-day activities. And we all know full well, you don't need me to tell you. And I'm no picture of health necessarily. But... You know, just the fundamentals of getting out there, and it's not just about the physical exercise and what it means for your physical, uh, your physicality. There's lots of research, especially now that the weather has warmed up a bit, another glorious warm day here in town. It's good for the head, right? It just really, truly is good for the head to get out there and get a bit of uh, activity. So an emailer referring to uh, Joey Jeremiah's call there a little while ago, and he mentioned the fact that he'd probably get screeched in at the LSPU Hall. I mean, one of my good pals here at work, JLAC, he's he's performing the screechings, I think, fairly frequently. And the, the comment was, I mean, are we still doing that? You know, what do people think of us when they participated in the screeching and some of the language that's used that no one ever says and kissing fish, which nobody does? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. It's a bit of fun for some people who enjoy it. And, you know, just about every conference that has ever come to this town and maybe right across the province, a screeching becomes a fundamental offering at these events but i don't know if people like it or loathe it or still we should still be at it or not but it's a thing it's a thing it actually is a big thing for some of the bars downtown getting screeched into christians or trapper johns or what have you it's actually a big part of what they actually do uh anyway so let's uh, check in on the twitter box yeah i think you paid Stefan's earlier too yeah so let's check in on the twitter box we're vocm open line follow us there our email address is openline at vocm.com and i'm pretty sure off the top we did play the Siobhan's version of one fine day so now we're actually going to wrap it up this uh this morning with the 1963 version from the crystals who cracked it into the top 10 and yes we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on vocm and big land fm's open line on behalf of the producer david williams i'm your host patty daly have yourself a safe fun happy day we'll talk in the morning bye-bye